can't never stop working hard. Each day I feel I have to improve. Hard work, determination. I've got to keep pushing myself. Hello and welcome to Hiya, the only podcast that's not afraid to kick you square in the earballs, buddy. <laughs> Woo. Episode 37, recorded May 26, 2013, starts now. Hiya. Right now. Hiya. I am boosted. Yeah, boost. <laughs> that was a little shocking. <laughs> <laughs> we were just in the middle of mic checks, and then all of a sudden, in that case, hiya. Oh, yeah. boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's having a palpitation over there. <laughs> Actually, you, you look hale and hearty, Bruce. It's been a long time since we've had you in the chair. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah. yeah. They still call you Bruce? They do. All every right. Every time. Yeah, every day. Oh, yeah. very cool. <laughs> they call him by name. you got to ask for Bruce by name. Oh, yeah. Bruce. <laughs> Some people call me Bruce. Yes. Can they call you Roy? They could. Yeah? Yes. All right. All right. Well, what have you been up to since you've been gone? Away. Uh, Practicing being me, basically, uh, living the dream, touring the world, doing martial arts, playing with uh, soundboards, and, you know. Yeah? Yeah. Sounds like fun. You run across any uh, martial artists lately? What kind of training have you been doing on the road? Yeah, um, I've been hanging out with a guy who practices Singy, who's the drummer for a band that I was, uh, on, that was on the tour I just finished, and you know, we get together and practice in the parking lot, as usual, for... An hour after the show is over, yeah, and instead of getting <laughs> drunk and doing drugs, yeah. what you'd pass on that? <laughs> you yeah. got drunk we, and we, did we some missed, food. We missed the party and and practiced singing and nice. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. I admire your fortitude, sir. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you get better at it. Oh yeah, um, by admiring it. All right, we got a great show coming up for you today. We've got uh, an interview with one Ben Judkins. Ben Judkins. Yes, who blogs over at Kung Fu Tea. Uh, Is that like Ice Tea? PhD in political science, uh, Wing Chun instructor, interesting oh. fellow. So Very nice. we're going to get heady with you folks in a minute. Yes, indeed. Well, hey, let's talk a couple quick martial arts things before we get this hey, party what's, properly what's started. <clears throat> Our recent guest. Chris Yatskovich. Nice. Uh, apparently stomped up and down at the Grappler's Quest and won gold. And oh. the, uh, the uh, Masters Elite, I think, is the category. Sweet. Congrats, yeah. brother. He was putting on a gun show with his belt or whatever, <laughs> hanging over his metal, hanging over his arms. Nice. <laughs> yeah, blowing up to Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. So uh, if anybody else wants to say something stupid about catch wrestling, I guess they should go talk to him. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Those catch wrestlers, it's all fake. Yeah. <laughs> catch is Chris can, right? All right. So congratulations, Chris. Uh, good one on you. Nicely done. Um, re- real quickly, also, I'd like to toss in something we haven't done in a while, which is a woo duh oh, segment. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Woo duh. Woo duh. What is Wu Da? (laughs) Well, let me explain it to you as if you were a new listener. Yeah. Wu Da in the Chinese. Oh, Craig, this is your field. You go ahead and just tackle that real quick. Yeah, but you got the pronunciation down. 
Yeah. Yeah. Wu De, just uh, literally Wu is as in Wu Shu, which means martial, uh-huh. uh, and De as in Tao De Ching, uh, virtue, and literally means martial virtue. Right. Uh, like a code of ethics? Yeah, a code of ethics, of behaviors that are appropriate and aren't. Um, and, uh, of course, our segment is Wu De, D-U-H. Because we're talking about mistakes that people can often make when relating with other martial artists or with martial artists in general, Mm. which brings me to this one. This is a bit more just for the general listening public (laughs) as if there were such a thing. But, uh, (laughs) this start, I got the idea for this. We were at the park a couple of weeks ago training and we were circling and we were an hour into the workout and everybody was really zoned in. You know, we were under that little concrete covered area. And, uh, these uh, strange-looking people came over and just started thumping tubs of things down virtually in our midst. One of my students told me this story. I know where you're going. That's and they funny. didn't say anything about it, and it kind of pissed me off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, uh, hello. And they're like, oh, uh, they told us to put that there. I'm like, they told you to put that? Okay, well, you know, you could have said something, anything. Who is well, they? they told us that. <laughs> they started walking, oh, well, oh, sorry, they told us to put it there. And I'm like, that's what the Nazis said. Yes, I got one of them right <laughs> off the bat. But I didn't say it loud enough. It turned out they were nice enough people. They just had no concept of, that's, you know. Personal that's space. invading space right mm-hmm. there. Coming up and not saying anything. It turned out they were pagans. It looked like a Ren Fest was getting ready. <laughs> a little miniature Ren Fair was getting set up. And they had their pentagrams yeah. and their candles and their flouncy uh, saffron clothing. Nice. And, yeah, and they, they were nice enough. You know, we didn't have a problem with them. But that brought me around to thinking, you it know, what's the best way? There. And this should be easy to handle. What's the best way for someone to approach a martial arts class from the outside? Like if they want to ask questions about it or they're interested in doing it or, you know, whatever. If, if you see a class going on, how do you approach it? I, I, this off obviously happens to me as well. Um, cause in the exact same spot where you're describing, uh, we train the exact same spot on Sundays. And I also get it on Wednesdays when we're literally in the city square practicing and people sometimes, you know, it comes in a variety of flavors. Some will just walk literally through your class. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're the teacher. So you're kind yeah, of you're like you're busking in front of the subway. Yeah. You know, I just don't want any of it. <laughs> Try not to trip over your bucket. You know? it's, it's ridiculous. But you know, I, I've also noticed that, you know, if they're just walking through you and all that kind of thing, yeah, it's, it's bothersome. But the ones that I've ended up talking to are the ones that just stand on the outside and are quiet and appear to be respectful of, of what's going on and the space um, so they can kind of see the perimeter. Their mama taught them good, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, waiting for an obvious break or pause, and then approaching directly and say, "Excuse me, do you mind if I or whatever their yeah. situation is?" Bruce, what's your take on this? I, you know, I would have the opposite experience in that, not from a teacher standpoint, but from a person who comes upon a martial arts class standpoint and wanting to join in and and learn what they have to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I travel, you know, I might, I might get lucky and, um, have a day off occasionally. I'll go to the local park or where I think martial artists will be hanging out. And sometimes I'll come up on a class and I'll sit there and, you know, politely watch. And hopefully one of them will introduce themselves. And, you know, sometimes they do. It's a great experience. And, you know, they let me join their class and, you know, and they understand that I'm just a visitor and I respect what they're doing and I don't offer opinions 
unless they're really asked for, you know? Right. Yeah. And we're mainly just talking about the approach, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a great thing that you're doing because especially in a public place like a park, if you hang out for a minute and watch whoever's running that class is going to notice. Of course. And they will find an appropriate point where they can walk away for a minute and say, hey, what's, you know. That's normally exactly how it goes. They'll they'll say, hey, how are you? Because they'll introduce themselves and. Yeah. Between the guy who's who's just kind of spying, sitting across the park or whatever, and is just watching because he's entertained, and someone who's made a point to say, hey, I'm interested without being rude by making your presence known of coming up and standing just outside that circle, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. And, a lot and of it's ta- the same way you'd enter a conversation in any capacity, right? You mm-hmm. know, if two people were talking on the street and you wanted to butt in on that conversation, you would stand a little bit outside. Right. And... Put wait. your attention on them and wait. They'll notice. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah, you don't want to interrupt somebody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in any part of your life, I guess. Yeah. 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 It's a it's a rude thing. But I, I think something people ought to realize because I felt this a little bit when they just came in and started dumping stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, almost on top of us is that when you're practicing martial arts, especially that's why I said we were like an hour into class and we'd you know done like two houses and we're starting a third and we're kind of grinding it out. You know. Yeah getting our heads into it, um, that can set you off a little bit. Yeah. You know, because you're, you're primed a little while you're practicing, mm-hmm. you know, and it can actually, you can be more aggressive. So that's, that's something you have to watch out for because it, these people, like most people that do it, really don't intend anything. They just don't know how to cope with what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And they're pro- I mean, a lot of times people aren't aware of what martial arts are doing when they're practicing or that they're even practicing anything they just think yeah. some what weird kind of dance is that yeah. they probably thought we were early for the pagan dance. meeting <laughs> aren't you a pagan practicing your dances you... for the ritual oh, you know i think i might have to let them off the hook because that just occurred to me i think they thought we were there like warming up the spot for them invoking some demons what was and... in the coolers oh i you know i didn't stick around actually they pulled it was you know it was exactly like ren fair stuff but Smaller scale and right. catered to pagans. So sconces <laughs> in the shape of pentagrams. And little leather pouches and things like that yeah. that you can put your gree-gree in. Oh, I don't know what pagans do. <laughs> Fuck. <I don't. laughs> Me either. They look like they were setting up for a Red Fair or a Grateful Dead concert. Yeah. <laughs> One of the two. Hippies with a little, you know, um, bit of the reading the witchcraft books and stuff, I guess. Yeah. Right on. So anything else to throw in on that? I think that was a fairly simple one to cover, but it's something we should all be aware of on the inside and the outside. It is. Uh, Let me add uh, one bit. Um, Taking the flip side of it, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you're working the grind and all that and you get primed and that makes sense. On the flip side, if you're doing something, let's say a Qigong or something where you're getting really kind of meditative, you know, and you're in your zone. And there's, it's going to be a minute before there's an obvious pause sign that the person should introduce. Well, even if, you know, they're around you and start walking up, you know, walking up to you and stuff like that, that's not as um, stop halting you as vocal as voice. Like if they say, um, excuse me, excuse me, and they try to get your attention, you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's more so than if you're doing like kind of being, you know, sweaty and working a hard workout. When you're that meditative, just even the speaking can jar you a little bit and kind of oh, wish you did. Yeah, that, I mean, if you if you just approach near enough so that you're in their circle of awareness and you don't have to say anything. Mm-hmm. And you know what? If you could, if you approach a school that's especially if they're training in the park, or even if you walk into their facility and you stand there for twenty or thirty minutes in plain sight and nobody comes to talk to you, 
that school's not approachable. Exactly. You know, they, they don't want your business for whatever <laughs> reason, or they don't want you around their practice. Just walk away and brush it off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If they are ignoring the opportunity to speak to you, that's something different. Right. That's a good point. I've had, I've had a few experiences where I've gone into a school and been ignored and thought, oh, maybe they just didn't notice me or maybe he's busy teaching the class. So I waited around thinking that he was just following procedure and, you know, giving his students his undivided attention, you know. Right. And he, he sort of said that I interrupted his class and, you know, it was like, <laughs> I was like, all I really did was stood here and watched. There was a sign on your door that said open and another sign that said martial arts. Right. <laughs> so I came in mm-hmm. and no one, no one greeted me. So I think it, you know, it's some, the responsibility of good interactions re, you know, Two-way falls street. on both Absolutely. parties. You know. And, you know, it's not, it's a concern for people training in the park that don't make a living doing this because they train in public places and you have to deal with the public well or you won't be welcome at that park for long. True, true. Uh, <laughs> and if you're running a business, it's a hundred times more important because you want to present a welcoming atmosphere. Yeah. If it's for business, that means money and anybody that comes to you is potential new money. So. Yeah. Yeah. And these are just basic politeness skills that we all sometimes forget if we're not familiar with what's going on on the other end. <laughs> Go pagans! Yay! All I right. Have to Google what a pagan is because I have all these images of what a pagan could be. Like, mm. yeah, they don't have cloven feet. Apparently, I checked. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> I thought they did. Like, because well, anyways, we'll square this away in the champagne lounge. Okay. <laughs> Go pagans. <laughs> All right there, loudy. Loudy me loud pants. For once, he looks at the microphone. All right. Well, we'll be right back uh, with Ben Judkins after a short segue into the Champagneatorium. Ben Judkins in the studio with us, or, well, via Skype. He's a Wing Chun instructor uh, with blue hair and Wing Chun up in New York State, and he is a Ph.D. in political science. But the main reason we came across this guy is because he has a blog called Kung Fu Tea. Um, 
Ben, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about what your blog is and what it's trying, what you're trying to do with it. Well, the main thing I'm trying to accomplish with my blog is to uh, create a community for both scholars and students uh, where we discuss the Chinese martial arts in a more academic framework. You know, I, I myself actually am a professional academic. You know, I, I've got my Ph.D. I taught at the University of Utah. I'm going to be teaching here in New York State again. So that, that's really kind of my main professional identity. Uh, I'm interested in the Chinese martial arts. I do research about it. And uh, it's interesting because people in lots of different areas of academics talk about Chinese martial arts. You see historians who do it. You see theater people or media communications people who do it every so often. There'll be an anthropologist or a social scientist who does it. But there wasn't a place where you could kind of create a community and bring these various voices together and really use all of these different approaches to build a more synthetic understanding. So, you know, with my blog, I'm trying to begin to put that kind of a community framework in place. I don't know. This is, there's a huge vacuum here, basically. The, the amount of scholarship that has even been uh, carried out on Asian martial arts is is just the tip of the iceberg at this point. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, one of the things I found when I, I, dis, I discovered when I started to do this was there was really more information out there and more scholarship than had been done than you might think. It's yeah. just that um, we didn't read it. It wasn't all put together in one place. No one knew where to look for it. But, for instance, you know, there's a historian um, who named Eshrick who, who writes on uh, you know, Chinese rebellions and the Boxer Rebellion, the Boxer Uprising. And he has wonderful, wonderful discussions of what Plum Blossom boxing was like, you know, around the turn of the century. And it's this great historical resource on the Chinese martial arts. And unless you're one of the 15 college professors in the country who writes on that particular rebellion, you don't know that it exists. So right. <laughs> I think our, our, our first job is really just to kind of take accounting of the stuff that's out there. And there's really a lot more out there than you'd suspect. Yeah. And uh, one of the features you have on your blog is uh, when significant works come out that deal with Chinese martial arts, you tend to do a little uh, review and, and summary of what's going on with them. So that's a great way for martial artists to... <laughs> To sort of as a gateway, if we're not academics and we don't have you know clearance to get onto research, uh, you know journal sites and that sort of thing. Definitely, I think um, actually this is Craig, by the way. Uh, hi, Craig. Hi there. Um, coming across your blog, I was I was highly impressed just with the overall feel of it, um, coming at it from a scholarly angle. You know, I loved uh, you know Journal of Asian Martial Arts. That was you know one of the main publications that came out that approached mm -hmm. uh, things from that nature. But to see it, um, more people come out, you know, in the digital front from a scholarly point of view like yourself uh, is absolutely awesome. Because, you know, if you're a serious uh, TCMA guy or traditional Chinese martial artist, uh, you know, you get tired of coming across the websites or reading brochures and reading the same uh, Chinese placemat, you know, BS over yeah. and over and over, um, yeah. you know. Everything came from Shaolin Temple, 495 yeah. A.D. Bodhidharma and his tea, yeah. you know, eyelids right. became tea, tea, and all this kind of nonsense. But reading the uh, the real uh, aspects based on documentation and things that people have done the work to actually find and document, it's uh, it's yeah. really great. And kudos for you to do it. Well, I, you know, I'm glad that you know that, that you uh, find it helpful. And I gotta say, I've been very, I, I've been very impressed or, or very. 
surprised really with the, the popular response that my blog has gotten. I mean, when I started to write this blog, when I started to do Kung Fu Tea, literally expected that my audience would be like, you know, two dozen people who were all professors or graduate students. And, you know, and in my mind, that's who I was writing to, kind of these two dozen people who did Chinese popular culture and were interested in how the martial arts fit into Chinese popular culture. But, you know, what I discovered was that, uh, in fact, there was a very, very large crossover audience of, of actual practicing Chinese martial artists who really were very interested in these more historical or sociological aspects of the art, found it helpful to them. And, you know, so I, I have been putting more kind of popular material into the blog, too, you know, to, to keep these various audiences, um, you know, satisfied. But, it, you know, it has been very rewarding and, and very interesting to me to see the number of martial artists who want that kind of historical or that kind of social discussion. Absolutely. And let me ask you this. Do you think that... Um that that might be partially due to pressure put on the traditional community from things like MMA. Uh, people are starting to, to want to get more real with it. If you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting because um, I think people have wanted to get real with this since the very, very beginning. One of the things that I have, that I have been working on that I have not had a chance to write about on the blog yet. And I, I haven't published on yet is I have been doing a survey of every article that, you know, came out in a martial arts magazine before, you know, 1966, 1967. And I have cataloged all of the articles that came out in Black Belt, you know, all the way back to the very, very beginning. <laughs> wow. And, you know, it's fascinating because oh, it, it's a great project. But it, it's fascinating because if you go to the late 50s and you go to the early 60s, what you'll discover is there were actually a number of people who really wanted to know about the Chinese martial arts and were asking very good, informed questions. And every once in a while, you would even get, you know, kind of informed informants who would come and tell people things. You know, so William C.C. C. Hugh, you know, wrote a, a series of articles for Black Belt back in the early 60s, you know, and he was an academic a college professor where, where he was kind of, you know, giving his take on Chinese history. But the interesting thing was, you know, you just kind of never built up that critical community of of, uh, of literature, of discussion that you needed to really let that go forward. You know, right. so people have been interested in this all the way back. Now, has MMA changed things? Uh, you know, I think absolutely. I, I, I think that there's no doubt. Um, you know, today there's a little bit more cultural pressure for people to uh, to understand what they're doing and, and to be able to, to explain it in a more lucid way. And, you know, people are, are asking different questions than they might have, you know, at the height of the kung fu craze, you know, in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s, when, you know, people were more interested in kind of living out a personal myth. Right. <laughs> and hey, you know, that's when I started. And that's how I came to this stuff is, mm -hmm. you know, trying to live out a personal myth that I was concocting based on pop culture, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, in some sense, that is the original Kung Fu experience. If you go back to Shanghai in the 1920s, you know, or Hong Kong in the 1950s, you will also discover a lot of people trying to live out a personal myth. So, yeah, on the fill one some hand, cultural hole. <laughs> oh yes, exactly. Fill a cultural hole, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, I am very interested in, in, in pursuing this. On the other hand, I, I do think we need to treat our oral culture and our myths and our legends because you know that's what they are with a certain amount of reverence. Because you know, like I was saying, you know. 
they are, in a sense, kind of a culture of Kung Fu, and, and they do make very interesting oral history themselves, or very interesting social history. And, you know, you still do get people in the martial arts who are there for personal transformation and who want to live out these myths. So, you know, rather than busting the historical myths up, you know, I'm not down on the Shaolin Temple. I think the Shaolin Temple is as neat as anybody else, but sure. I want to study it. You know, I want to study it as folklore. I want to understand it as culture. Yeah. Right, right. And there's no reason to throw all that out with the bathwater. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so much of Chinese martial arts essentially revolves around uh, a concept of a pre-scientific paradigm. Yeah. Where you can take a lot of what's said, you know, that you can take what's said and what's done and sort of separate the two to a certain extent mm-hmm. and enjoy one half of it for one reason and the other half for a different reason. Yeah. Well um, you know, it may not be a vitalistic life force that's moving around when you do Qigong, but there's still a reason people did it and it still feels good when people do it today. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, there is a lot of variety. You know, and, and again, I think that that was the case in the past, you know, uh, uh, you know, we're talking about the various books that I reviewed on the site. You know, one of the things that comes up is that, you know, there was a lot of variety in the past about, you know, the reasons why people did things. You know, opera yeah. singers may have studied, you know, uh, martial arts for very different reasons than soldiers. And how they studied martial arts may have actually been very different from that guy who was gunning to get a job as a private security guard or something like that. And and so that that is one of the things that, you know, makes this whole discipline so difficult. You know, of course... Kung Fu is a is a is a multi variegated phenomenon today, but it always was in the past too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's, if you don't mind, let's attack just a couple of different uh, articles or concepts that have come up in your blog a little bit more specifically, um, just so people can have a clearer idea of, what, of the kind of work you're doing over there. Okay. But, one of them is the first article that I read on your blog that really turned me on to it, and I picked it up via another message board. It was uh, being passed around. was uh, an article you did on the Da Dao. Oh, uh, nice. yeah. Yeah. Would you just give our our listeners a little taste of what that article's about? Uh, I, I found it pretty eye-opening to sort of approach that, that weapon and also look at its, you know, the symbolism it held in society and part of the reason it persisted so long. Yeah. Well, you know, like like people who are into the Chinese martial arts in general, I, I think, and you know, pretty much all martial artists, uh, we have an interest in weapons. And you know, my main interest in weapons is actually Nepalese kukris, and and I was looking at how kukris got used. And you know, I discovered that yeah, in the 20th century there were lots of armies all over Asia that were adopting these big bladed weapons, and the Chinese had maybe the biggest, scariest bladed weapon out there. I know, you know it's just so, so cool these, to look at. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I mean they're they're stunning. You know these these giant military hacking saber machetes. I mean, in one sense, you know, you look at anyone and say it's like a machete sort of an implement, but then it's just entirely too thick. I mean, you know, some of them have the handling characteristics of an axe when you get right down to it. Right. Uh, so I started to ask myself some you know really serious questions about you know why would right thinking military men you know in the mid twentieth century in militaries that, you know, have artillery and bombers and machine guns, right? You know, why do you start issuing your troops swords when these same troops very often, you know, have 
absolutely modern weapons. I mean, I think we actually, by the way, go way too far when we disparage the material capabilities of the Chinese army. You know, yeah, yeah. Their, their uniforms may have not been great quality, but their weapons were in reality, just as modern as anybody else's, right? And and that's what makes this kind of reversion to the sword so paradoxical. So, you know, that's a puzzle. That's the kind of thing that, you know, an academic mind looks and latches onto and says, huh, there's, there's something to be explained here. So, you know, I wrote a post in which I kind of looked at the social history of the dog and kind of traced back as far as I could uh, in terms of how they were used and when they were used and, and kind of what the mythology is. And of course, the mythology is that, you know, the Chinese troops had no machine guns. They had no ammunition. All they had was peasant implements, and this is what they were going to fight the Japanese back with. And there were right. a couple of very important battles, actually, where the Chinese troops did fight, you know, back the Japanese. You know, the Battle of Marco Polo Bridge, it, you know, the beginning of the uh, Japanese assault on Beijing and things like that. And, and so there are these couple of historical incidents where Dado are used on the battlefield, and they become important. Um, but really what I discovered as I was doing the research is, you know, most mainline Chinese troops actually didn't carry giant military sabers with them. You know, most of them carried rifles and machine guns exactly like you'd expect them to, and they carried grenades, and that's what they fought with. But in reality, you know, it was second-line troops. It was military police officers. It was railway guards. You know, it was people in local militias. Uh, that were that were were using these weapons, and that then became a very interesting story because what you saw was an evolution in how the Chinese people thought about them. That at first, you know, this was not a popular weapon. This was something that made people have warm and fuzzy feelings about their government because they only ever saw these military sabers when someone was being beheaded or disemboweled with them in the marketplace. Yeah, and then as World War II was going things start to change. Martial artists, you know, start to train militias, and, and they start to look for weapons that you can use, and this becomes adopted as one of these weapons. Martial artists all over China and all of these different styles start to develop their own routines for training militia members, and the entire reputation of the weapon in society changes. Suddenly, it Rather than being something that's really about, you know, almost government oppression, kind of ruling the people through terror, suddenly this weapon becomes something that's about, you know, national uh, uh, liberation and personal liberation and the thought that you can save the nation, you you can do something. And the role of martial artists in kind of transforming this thing that had been a symbol of, you know, official government terror into a symbol of national liberation, you know, you know, where, you know, you see people in militia units training with their swords and, you know, you see school girls of older women pooling their money to buy these swords from soldiers. It was really amazing. Uh, and I, I, yeah, you know, I, I think that that right there kind of shows the value of Chinese martial studies because it shows how, martial artists and, you know, that kind of martial, you know, part of society has really kind of affected change in Chinese popular culture that scholars haven't been looking at, that we've just kind of missed. Yeah, and, and it's amazing how, look, when you look at it through that lens, it's pretty clear that it was, you know, like you said, it was a tool of oppression, a government implement. Uh, it's part of the reason it looks the way it does, right? 
but mm-hmm. they, they managed in a time of crisis to to retain its potency as a symbol, but turn that outward, you know, and yeah. use it as protection instead of a threat. Let me run this by you. This is something else that comes up a lot uh, in your in your blog. Um, and uh, you just put a post up today, I think, that deals with this pretty directly, but I haven't had time to read it thoroughly yet. Um, but there's this is a kind of a running theme, sort of the, de- the development of uh, what are called traditional arts now in the, the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, oh, yeah. And that's, that's a history that, you know, a lot of people are almost completely ignorant of. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of the you focus a lot of your attention on southern China, but you, you range all over the place. Why don't you give people that may not be familiar with some of those aspects uh, a little bit of a background on that? Well, okay, you're, you're right. A lot of people are kind of ignorant uh, of this particular time period. You know, uh, the Ming Dynasty is is really kind of romanticized. Everybody wants to know about fighting pirates in 1550. And then, of course, everybody knows about their teacher. They know about the generation right before them. And somehow we miss everything in between. It's like right. we go right from the Ming Dynasty to my teacher, and we, we just kind of like ellipse the whole end of the 19th century and early 20th century. And it's a crying shame, because this is when all of the really interesting stuff happens. I mean, I mean, interesting is a different way of saying it can be a nightmare sometimes. You know, if you look at what late 19th century Chinese history was like, you know, the Taiping Rebellion onward. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, you know through the middle of the, the, the 20th century, in a sense, I, I think it's it's kind of understandable why there are large gaps in our knowledge of China, because it's just a very disrupted era of history. That fact notwithstanding, this is when the modern Chinese martial arts, as we experience them as martial artists today, you know, these hand combat systems, this is when they really came together. You know, a lot of the martial arts that we collectively as a community practice now were just invented in the late 19th century. This is, this is when their actual genesis was, despite what their creation myth may say. And then other arts that really do have an older history, like Tai Chi or, you know, the various schools of Shaolin, a lot of those arts were, were really substantially reformed in the late 19th and early 20th century. So mm-hmm. even though they do have an earlier history, well, it's not often so much what we are actually interacting with, right? We yeah. are kind of interacting with this product of an era that was, you know, uh, you know, all about globalization. Trade was taking over, industrialization was taking over, urbanization was taking over. In many ways, you know, the, the, the martial arts that we know emerge out of a period of modernization in Chinese history. And as a matter of fact, I think that's why they can be so popular in the West. They're kind of congruent with our lives. They actually fit very nicely into a, you know, modernist capitalist lifestyle. And it's well because they came out of, you know, another modern period of history that was facing a lot of the same, a lot of the same problems. So one of the things I try to do over and over again on my blog is to kind of drill into this period of history because, uh, it is, a, it is so important for so many different styles. You yeah. know, I you know, write about Sun Lutang and Tai Chi and how he reformed the way people think about the internal arts. At the same time, I'm talking about Chan Hua Shun and Ng Chun So when we're talking about Wing Chun in the South, who are trying to create commercial styles out of something that had not been a commercial style before. 
you know, and, and this is, it's also just a horribly interesting era, era. I mean, you know, you've got revolutions and, and civil wars and warlords and, you know, competing martial arts associations. I mean, what's not to like? Yeah, it's, it's, no, the Chinese were... a great period to write about. Yeah, yeah. They, they were cursed with living in interesting times for a while there. <laughs> <laughs> they it, During that uh, Republican era, that's also, I noticed, when um, they were making a lot more of the uh, commercial printings of, like, martial arts manuals and making them available as a product you can just buy off the street. Uh, it was crazy mm-hmm. times. Chen Wu came about, and uh, mm-hmm. my own system, uh, Northern Shaolin, under uh, Kuyu Chong, you know, he totally mm-hmm. sent. That's when he said, "This is what the style consists of," and that's yeah, in my yeah. personal. Yeah, you know, Chin Wu is huge. It's been very, very important. You know, so this, this is it's one of the things I really want to talk about is is understanding kind of this middle period. You know, not really ancient, not really modern, but but this is our formative period. And then, what are the influences that go into it? All right, you know, that's very interesting. You know, one of the questions I'm looking at right now with, like, you know, Ching Wu is, you know, that was really run by four or five businessmen behind the scenes, right? There's four right. or five, like, bright little millionaires who are running that organization, <laughs> right? Well, the those guys, yeah, those, those guys have ties to southern China. At least some of them were from Guangzhou, you know, others of them did business there. That's really interesting, because if you go back to Guangzhou in the late 19th century, in some senses, it was actually more advanced than Shanghai. And one of the things that they had in Guangzhou was successful martial arts brands. Okay, so kind of what sorts of lessons are they learning? Right? You know, and then how does that go into how you market the next generation of the martial arts? Likewise, you look at Guangzhou and Foshan, you know, and again, I, I'm interested in these areas both because I do Wing Chun, but also because they were just leading economic and social areas of China in the early 19th century. You know, uh, Foshan was one of the richest towns in China. You know, you mm-hmm. look at the martial arts associations that come out of Foshan and you start to say, well, wait a second. You know, these don't look like Confucian schools and they certainly don't look like military units. What do they look like? Well, they look like guilds. They look like guild halls. Yeah. You know, well, okay, what's the relationship between, you know, kind of, uh, you know, hometown societies and economic guilds and martial arts associations? That's something people haven't looked at yet, but it's a very fertile area. There's, yeah. there's a lot of crossover there. Absolutely. And uh, can you clarify a little bit for me the kind of the concept of um – I think in, in your new article, you put it in terms of branding as opposed to artisanship, um, or you use those terms to, to define it anyway. Could you clear that up? Well, for yeah, me? I mean, you know, I should get you know, credit where credit is due. So Paul Bowman, you know, had a paper that I cited, you know, in that particular article. He was talking about the, you know, he, he studies media and uh, the martial arts, and he was talking about you know, what happens when the martial arts are kind of repackaged as a media commodity and in the media, he was looking at the media discourse around martial arts. And, and, and he asked a very pointed question at one point in, in this paper. And, you know, he asked, you know, to what extent can we even think of the traditional martial arts as they exist today as, you know, kind of authentic fighting styles versus as brands? And, and he, didn't, he never answered that question directly in his paper. And he had bigger fish to fry. He was going after 
post-colonialism and doing all kinds of important work there. But, oh, okay. you know, I, I think the, he implied an answer that was pretty clear. So what I was doing with that particular post was kind of engaging with his scholarship, right? I was taking mm-hmm. that sentence and running with it and saying, okay, let's say that we do think of the traditional martial arts as economic brands rather than, say, you know, uh, long-standing cultural associations. Okay, so if we think of them as economic brands, what work does that do for us? What can I understand about the martial arts, thinking of them as brands that I could not understand about them before? And this persistent narrative of lost lineages, which is something that came up. I mean, I, I don't think there's any large Chinese martial art that does not have you know, some lost lineages around its corner somewhere. You know, it seems like a kind of odd way to organize a social system. So can it help us, you know, understand that? Or even accepted lineages in the same style, like, you know, Bagua or something, where they're really extremely different when you look at what's going on. You're like, that's, it doesn't share any of the conceptual framework or anything with what I do, yet it's got the same general name. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, I don't know enough about Bagua, unfortunately, though I would love to know more about it. That's exactly the kind of thing that I was thinking, that, you know, I believe that there are some, you know, systems of Bagua that are very, you know, focused on groundwork and grappling, am I right? And others that just don't deal with it. And Yeah, um, like our branch is all about the upright grappling and striking range and multiple opponent tactics. Yeah, you know, and... You know, Plum Blossom is another fantastic example of this. I mean, that was an art that kind of, you know, spread across northern China in the 19th century like a wildfire, right? right? It just spread so mind-bogglingly fast. There's no way that you could actually teach people that quickly. You know, so (laughs) what's going on? Yeah, well, you know, it takes years to learn this stuff, and beyond learning it, it takes years for someone else to become, you know, a teacher. You know, even if you're doing this fast, you know, it's just spreading faster than you can possibly, you know, than you can wrap your hands around. Um, And that, you know, when you start to think of it as an economic concept, the truth is we have all kinds of tools that help us do that. You know, you can think of martial arts schools as franchises, for instance, well, you know, that kind of helps to explain, I think, the, the way that they spread themselves and propagate themselves and grow. And, you know, then if you look at them as brands and, you know, say, well, you know, you can franchise your brand or if your brand can be stolen from you, yeah, you know, you begin to get a little bit of traction on why it is that over the course of the 19th century, you lose fighting styles. It's like there's less variation in what people are doing on the one hand. But then on the other hand, the names that people have get progressively looser and looser and looser, that there are more and more and more things that happen under the auspice of Tai Chi and under Bagua and under Wing Chun. It's like there are fewer names out there, but then each one of these names gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, like almost every, you know, external style wants to use the word Shaolin in the marketing, you know, for example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I I think uh, what we're getting at here is a more precise thing of taking these lenses of looking at these things as branding is uh, it's, it's people shouldn't take this negatively. We're not trying to say that all traditional martial arts are crassly commercial. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's using these lenses to view it through in the, in this context that that yields new information. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and the next post will not be about branding, right? You know, I've done right. that exercise and I think, you know, we're 
a little bit better off for having thought about things in those terms. And, you know, the next post might be about sociolinguistics or something like that, you know, and, and, you know, that's kind of what we have to do. We're, we're still at the beginning of this Chinese martial studies project and we got to develop our tools. We have to sharpen our tools. We have to see what ideas we have that work and where those ideas are going to take us. And in a sense, a blog is a great place to do that. You know, it takes too long to write articles. And you have to be too precise. You know, when you publish sure. yeah. on paper, you know, you better be willing to live with that forever. But right now, as a field, I, I think we're in a space where we've got to try out a lot of ideas still. And so yeah. when Paul Bowman, you know, publishing his working paper online, which is what inspired this, you know, that's a fruitful way for us to have some informal conversations. And, you know, you know, then hopefully we'll know what we want to say. And so when I'm ready to submit my article to him by the end of August, I'll be able to do so. Because, you know, he's got a special edition of a journal coming up. But, you know, it's nice to be able to try some of this material out on a non-paying audience first. Right. And I think it should be encouraging to you guys that there, there is an audience for this out there. I've been intrigued with, with virtually everything I've read on there and I, it always leaves me with something new to think about. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's awesome. Um, if you don't mind, let me, uh, we'll get into a, a little more personal stuff here. Uh, cause we usually do this right up front, but I, I want to inject this element of it at this point. Uh, what got you into martial arts personally? You know, wh- why are you a Wing Chun or what's your passion? How did that start? <laughs> I think it's a difficult question. You know, it's like it, you take a lot of different passes at things at different points in your life. You know, my mm-hmm. father is an anthropologist. I should point that out, put that out there right now. So, you know, there just because of the way his career worked as a cultural anthropologist, you know, I was exposed to, you know, two different groups as he worked on different research projects. He, he works with, you know, some Native Americans and he works with some people for Asia, from Asia. So I was actually exposed to, you know, Asian culture and Buddhist monks from a very, very early age. And so, you know, nice. I, I think I was always just fascinated with, you know, Asia and Asian stuff. And so even when I was a little kid, I remember being interested in the martial arts. You know, I did what little kids did. You know, I, I, I did some Taekwondo when I was in, you know, high school and college. You know, that was great until I like, you know, hurt myself. And, you know, I, I studied some Kendo when I lived in Japan, which was a painful, if awesome, experience. Right. You know, I'd love, yeah, love to get back into Kendo, but, you know, there's no one around me right now that's, that's doing it. We've got Dr. Carl Friday down here in Georgia if you ever want to come visit. Oh, excellent. That sounds great. Yeah, no, it, it, it's incredible. And as a matter of fact, I, I actually suspect that Chinese martial artists could learn a lot from a little cross study with kendo because we seem to have this weapons renaissance going on mm-hmm. in the chinese martial arts right now and and let me tell you a little bit of kendo background really helps when you start thinking about okay how do we make our weapons practice uh you know kind of a, a more serious contact sort of uh an exercise but at any rate well, uh, you, know, you know actually if you don't mind le- yeah that's a great point and, and let me pause you there because this ties in with a question i was going to ask you at some point uh-huh. Um, uh, what do you think about the, the concept of form archaeology? I know you're, you're looking through historical records and documents and stuff like that. Um, and there is a renaissance both in Western and Chinese martial arts of people trying to really get serious about weaponry again, you know, hand to hand weaponry. Um, mm-hmm. uh, how much do you think can be learned from just going back to the actual, 
tactics or techniques and trying to view them through a historical lens, right? And, and try to recreate this sort of atmosphere where this would be a practical day-to-day activity. Uh, well, wait a second. Am I trying to recreate what? The, the form as a practical day-to-day activity or the well, life of the people who did that form as a day-to-day Thing. Trying to use your knowledge, uh, the stuff that you're doing about the lives of the people who do this day to day, and go back and construct the form. Right, right. You know, there are some guys in Singapore uh, that run a site called ChineseLongsword.com. They're doing a hell of a job of this. Uh, I really like what they're doing, and uh, more power to them. You know, I, I think that this is a worthwhile exercise. I think that this is one of the ex- exciting directions that Chinese martial studies could go in the future because, you know, for a long time what we said is, you know, there, there, there is no written record of the Chinese martial arts. It was all oral. You know, everything was oral culture, which of course is bunk. You know, right. there are dozens of surviving martial manuals and encyclopedias and eyewitness accounts and everything else from the, you know, Ming Dynasty and the Qing Dynasty. There's even some earlier stuff. Um, yeah, you can absolutely reconstruct that. The problem, of course, is that you only see the postures, not the movements, right? Right, yeah, the interstitial parts. <laughs> yeah, and, and what that means is that you are always reconstructing it through a lens of modern practice. It's like you're using the ethnographic analogy of modern spear or modern sword practice to reconstruct that. and. And that means that this will always be an imprecise science. And I am okay with that, because that means that we get to, you know, experiment. We get to spar. We get to see what works. And that's really kind of at the essence of weapons training anyway, right? Right. Um, So it's tricky. It is genuinely tricky to to reconstruct that kind of ancient weapons history. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. I actually think we could get a lot out of trying. Yeah, it'll always be informed by the modern context these sorts of things occur in, but that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile or fun. <laughs> well, aside from that, if, if it comes, I would say, from, um, let's say you're looking at a, <clears throat> a manual about a weapon, um, you're trying to reconstruct the, the form, but it comes from a style that you have some experience in, that's going to help a lot because your body movement training from that style in general, I think, would would handsomely pay off in, in trying to yeah, we, more accurately. We're lucky to have, a, especially people who are Asian martial artists as opposed to the Western martial artists that are trying mm. to revive some of this stuff. We still have a, an ongoing physical culture where some of this has been preserved for whatever reason in these modern martial arts right. styles. Yeah, you know, I, that is our great, you know, advantage, but it might also be our great disadvantage, right? You know, I was right. looking at a, doc, at a documentary on Wing Chun that uh, was produced recently, and they, they kind of, you know, went back and they looked at some Wing Chun people on the mainland that, you know, my particular lineage had been connected to maybe 60 years ago or something like that, and I was watching what they were doing. It's like, I don't even get it. I don't understand the movements. Why are they standing that way? Their shoulders are all wrong. And, of course, they're not all wrong. I'm sure right. they know exactly what they're doing. I have no clue what they're doing. <laughs> they know what they're doing, right? But then you say, oh, my God, it can change that much in 60 years. Yeah, how do you control for style creep, right? <laughs> yeah. So or it'll never you, be a hard you, science. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. or should you control style creep? I mean, that, that's the other thing. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a continual expression 
of certain goals. I'm concerned when the goals creep than uh. when the style creeps, right? You know, yeah. teachers may have to teach different things in different environments to different students. It's, it's more the underlying goals that I think we have to wa- you know, watch. So, yeah, well, whatever. Either here nor there. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, so, you know, again, on a, on a more personal note, you know, the, the sociopolitical approach you take to some of this stuff, uh, I, again, several times I've read stuff that was really eye-opening to me. But do you ever have a problem with other traditionalists because you are a traditional martial artist that uh, think you're somehow cheapening the arts by throwing the facts in their face sometimes? <laughs> or do you not run into that ever? Um, y- y- you know, yes and no. Yeah. You know, I-, I know that not everyone is super happy with everything that I write. But on the other hand, you know, having put that out there, I have to say I have been really surprised with how positive the reception to my work has been. And, you know, people in North America, people in Asia, people in Europe have all written me, you know, and, and, you know, different people like different things, obviously. Not everybody likes everything. But in general, I have actually been very, very surprised at how positive the reception to this line of, of research has been. And I've been pleasantly surprised with you know, how few traditionalists have, you know, have just come up to me to say, you're doing it wrong, or, you know, you know you're know you killing the <laughs> art, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it turns out I think traditionalists these days are, are becoming more and more hard-nosed, you know, uh, in their approach to things, and I, I think that's good for everybody. Well, you know, and... And I'm comparing the, this back to the, the 70s and 80s that. when there was a, you know, a huge kung fu uh, mythology out there in the popular culture. Uh, excuse me, can you say that again? Oh, I say I'm comparing this to the to the early uh, 80s and that kind of time period, uh-huh. which I also experienced where there was just this huge sense of pop mythology around everything. And, and people would get very offended if you said their their Sifu wasn't, you know, yeah. walking on water every night. Well, you, you know, I think people still might if I were to walk into their school and say that. Right. Right. But, you know, the thing is, I never would. I never in a million years would I walk into someone's school as they're explaining the myth of the Shaolin Temple and say, well, you know, that's just bunk. You know, that's not the way it happened at all. It was really an independent warlord in 1644, right? Because it's neither here nor there. And he said, what they're doing right. is they're actually doing Kung Fu, right? They, mm-hmm. they are doing the Chinese martial arts, they're teaching the Chinese martial arts as a primary experience. And, and having a mythology and having a shared body of story and myth is part of that. And if people want to believe that, that's up to them. I'm not writing this blog to set anybody straight. I'm writing this <laughs> blog for people who are interested in kind of an academic analysis of the stuff. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why I don't get into trouble is that, you know, I, I don't put it in anybody's grill. I just put the stuff out there on my blog and, you know, I don't get in fights with people and I don't try to change anybody's mind. And, you know, I, I know my target audience and, you know, a lot of them are other professors and graduate students. And yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got to say that, you know, again, um, Kudos to you for for taking this approach. I'm I'm seeing a radical kind of shift slowly but surely uh, through the decades. Of now, more and more, uh, are you finding 
you know, even students, when I get a new student or inquiry to my class and I ask them about their experience in, in going around to different schools, more and more people are are wanting and demanding more uh, from their instruction or their explanation. Uh, you know, their BS detectors go off a little bit early. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. finding that when people are just fed the myth that they can read on any website, you know, all over the Internet, they realize, well, if this person doesn't really give a crap about the details so much, then their kung fu is probably not going to be that great. They're going to—they're starting to see it as more and more aligned with a lesser quality. Um, yeah. You know, and that's not across the board yet, but that shift is slowly happening. I'm seeing, and it's due directly to you guys who are promoting, uh, you know, scholarly inquiry, you know, or intellectual inquiry, and 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 that's great. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's the Google effect right there. People have so much more information at their fingertips that, you know, they can find anything that they want. And what some people find when they go to Google is they find conspiracy theories. You know, there's right. nothing you can do about that. But a lot of people, you know, are pretty kind of savvy, independent, you know, researchers, and, and they discover that there may be more to the story, and they want to hear you provide more to the story, right? Yeah. Um so, you know, actually in my own Wing Chun school, by which I mean kind of the lineage I, I, I'm, I'm associated with, not just, you know, the people I teach, but also the people who my teacher teaches, you know, he started doing what I think is kind of a brilliant thing. We have a six-week introductory course, and, and part of that, you know, kind of introductory course is just meant to get people up to speed so they can kind of step into the other courses. Uh, part of that is we talk about Wing Chun's history and philosophy a little bit, and, and you know, we do it over the course of two nights, and in the first night, we tell people all of the myths and folklore, right? You know, we tell them about the burning of the Shaolin Temple, and we do Yim Wing Chung and the Red Boat Opera, and, you know, very often I was the one actually telling the story, and I can do it well. I mean, you know, I lecture yeah. professionally. I can spin a yarn, right? You know, I got these people wrapped around my finger. And then the next night, I tell them, ah, that's all not true. Yeah, that Southern <laughs> Shaolin Temple really, never existed. Yeah, this is... You know, what I don't even want to say really happened because, in a sense, there's still a lot we don't know. You know, of but this is what we really do know. These are the things we can nail down for sure. This is what the Shaolin Temple really was, right? This is how martial arts in southern China really worked. This is when we first find Wing Chun in the, the milieu that it was in. And so, all of our students get both of those two perspectives. And I think that they're very relieved and they're very satisfied. Yeah, that's you a know? great way to marry those two things together. Low yin yang action. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the time, they're like, ah, now I know what really happened. And by the way, the Shaolin Temple is still pretty cool, knowing its real history. Yeah. But, you know, the funny thing is, in the long run, what do people actually get value out of? What do they keep going back to, kind of as they're thinking about their personal practice? Very often it's the myths, right? Mm-hmm. You know, those it's inspiring. Myths, you know, the myths stick around for, for a reason because they they have good psychological bite on people. You know, people can kind of see themselves in the story of Yim Wing Chung. It's meaningful to them, yeah. right? And, and And so I don't ever want to not have those myths and folklore go on. Sure, I know that it's a marketing story from the 1920s, but you know what? It's still a damn good story. Yeah, somebody took their time coming up with that. For a reason. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, it helps people think about, you know, think about their practice. So, so give them both, give everybody all the options and let them choose. Definitely. And, and I, I'm completely with you on that. Um, I'm completely with you on that. I I love to personally research and things of that nature. And I do the same thing. I don't do it over two nights, you know, in in a package. I I do it over a period of time. But I initially Mm kind of give them the tried and true stories that they are used to hearing. And over a period Mm -hmm. of time, I slowly give them more and more detail of the truth of our history Mm -hmm. of of the system and all that good stuff. But let them know that the myth is not something you want to toss out as it's a lie or anything you know because it the great thing about these things is they inspire you you know it's kind of like listening to the ram uh, not rambo but the rocky song when you're practicing or something (laughs) it it you know gets your blood flowing you know it's nice yeah yeah you know that's right it inspires you you know and yeah really important in some sense to know the history when you're trying to understand certain aspects of the form i mean i think you know, one of the posts I wrote about was the one on the butterfly swords, right? The Houdier Dao. Yeah, um, as a yeah. matter of fact, w- w- the military big saber post in some ways was actually practiced to get ready to write this other post on, on the butterfly <laughs> swords that I had wanted to write for a long time, and I, I didn't want to mess it up. So I kind of did the big sabers first, right, you know, to, 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 to work the kinks out of the system. Test drive, yeah. Yeah, but w- one, of the, one of the things that comes out of that Especially, and it's especially evident if you study Wing Chun or a lot of these other southern Chinese martial arts like Choi Li Foot or, you know, Hungar, Southern Mantis. Craig's a big we fan all, of the Hawka hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, both of all of them. I mean, we all use the same basic weapons. Everybody uses butterfly swords. We, we have different names for them and different names for them for but it's always essentially the same weapon. And we always use these humongous nine-foot-long poles, right? These are the two major weapons that seem to be really popular in Southern styles. And and you say, why? And there's all of these weird, weird conspiracy theories that kind of got invented in the 1970s and 80s about how Shaolin monks liked butterfly swords because they could hide them in their sleeves or stuff that's bizarre like that. And what you really just... Yeah, I mean, what kind of monk walks around with butterfly swords? I mean, you know, none that I've ever dealt with. And I actually deal with Buddhist monks on a fairly regular basis, right? It's hard to believe that these stories got propagated to begin with. But at any rate, the really interesting thing when you look at the history is what you discover is the two basic weapons that were used in every village militia in southern China was that pole and those butterfly swords. Mm-hmm. You know, you can either use a pole or you can stick a spear point on the end of it, but it's essentially the same weapon. It's still a giant nine foot long pole. Right. It just hurts and worse then, when you get poked. <laughs> yeah. And, yin and, and yang to each other. Yeah. And then the local government is issuing tens of thousands of butterfly swords, sets of butterfly swords to, to local militia members. And you're like, hey, wait a second. When I see people in Wing Chun and the two weapons we have are butterfly swords and nine-foot poles, this doesn't have anything to do with Shaolin. It doesn't have anything to do with the opera. This has to do with the fact that these are the basic weapons for putting together a militia. Right. And when does Wing Chun first appear? Well, it appears in 1850. 
you know, or ish, 1850 around. That's when Moon Jan is practicing in Foshan, right? Right after a giant rebellion where all of the militias were active and fighting. It comes out of a period of militia-based warfare. And, and as a fighting art, it has the militia weapons in it. Well, you know, at some point that actually begins to change the way you think about the practice of this art, you know. This is not some mysterious woo-woo thing. You know, this right. is like militia <laughs> training, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it was, uh, it was meant to fill a very real need in a very real time and place, and it wasn't that long ago. So one last question for you, because uh, I don't want to waste your time and keep you on all night. Uh, but overall, just broadly, how do you feel or what, what is your take on how scholarship is developing uh, in traditional mar- martial arts right now? I mean, what should we be looking for on the horizon if you were going to make predictions about how this is going to develop? Uh, well, it's developing, it's developing quite well. Um, it's not as integrated as I would like to see, but you know, there are more people and more presses doing this and it's happening both in China and the U S actually, you know, even in Europe and Japan as well. So in general, we're going to see more of this in the future. I think we're just beginning to ramp up this process right now. Uh, you can really kind of break this down. There's a Chinese language literature on Chinese martial studies, as one might expect. And then there's, you know, kind of the Western literature, most of which is in English, but not all of which is in English, uh, on, on Chinese martial studies. The Chinese really got into this first, um, <laughs> starting probably in the 1990s. There have been a lot of books and articles written on Chinese martial topics by academics and and kind of these professional martial artists that, you know, teach in Wushu programs in universities in China. But a lot of the stuff produced in the 80s was a very uneven quality. You know, during the 70s, you had the Cultural Revolution, so, you know, nobody's right. publishing about this. Um, during the 80s, people start to publish about it again, and there are some good books that come out, but a lot of it just has kind of a recitation of, really highly ideological party line sort of stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. you'd be amazed you can get that much socialism into a discussion of Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> you know, then during the 1990s, there's really kind of a radical improvement in the Chinese language literature. And there are quite a few good books. There are quite a few good professors. I try to introduce some of them in the footnotes of my blog. Um, so that's that's going good. That that that's going well. In the West, what we see is there are more articles than books. Um, you know, people are still trying to break into the publishing market. We've had a couple of big books come out. Obviously, Peter Lorge's book on Chinese uh, martial arts from Cambridge University Press was a big thing. Uh, SUNY University Press has published multiple important things. They were actually one of the first movers in this. They did, you know, Douglas Wilde's book on the Lost Tai Chi classic, and they Mm -hmm. had a a group of collected articles that have come out. Uh, I think that that's where we want to expand next. We, we, We need more books through university presses, and I know there are multiple people that have manuscripts out there right now, you know, myself included, actually. So hopefully we'll see some movement on that front in the future. Uh, I know also that, uh, you know, there's some interest in in putting together some conferences on Chinese martial studies. 
you know, I had been cooperating with, you know, some other professors and students of the Chinese martial arts. And, you know, we're working hard to, to try to get a conference venue together for uh, 2015. Uh, and, you know, we want to get a call for papers out before not too long. Uh, so, you know, what we need to do next, uh, besides getting books published, which is always good, is, you know, get those conferences going, get those special journal articles going, where you can bring groups of scholars together from the various fields, let them talk to each other, let them feed off of each other's, you know, research, and, and really get it implanted in people's minds that they're that this is a viable research area. You know, it's not just right. a whole bunch of disparate people who study this. That's what we have now. Right. You know, there's anthropologists and historians and economists who study this, and they don't talk to each other. But but really kind of get them talking to each other, get them reading each other's literature, and kind of, you know, plant into people's minds, okay, we can really advance if we approach this as kind of an interdisciplinary research topic. Yeah, that that's great, and I, you know, I hope uh, that you and your colleagues continue to interact with, uh, to trickle down some of this knowledge on the 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 lay martial arts person, and hopefully things like this podcast and other forum fora will help, uh, you know, provide data and input to the process as we go along too. And as you get more information <clears throat> about that conference, as as things start to come together, definitely keep us posted. Well, I absolutely will. You know, of course, that's the whole point of the blog is to, you know, put a, put a place out there on, on the net where people can come and find out about the stuff and you can broadcast that information and keep everybody up to speed. So, yeah, you know, you guys will absolutely be in the loop. All right. Well, Mr. Judkins, man, it's been, it's been wonderful talking to you, and I think we've all got a lot to think about once again thanks to our interaction here. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Would you like to give people the URL for your blog and any other things they might uh, be looking out for here in the near future from you? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, the, the URL for the blog is ChineseMartialStudies.com. No www, just Chinese Martial Studies. And okay. uh, there's also a Facebook page that has the same name, you know, uh, the Kung Fu Tea on Facebook. So, you know, just look for that there. And in terms of things coming up, well, I mean, if I get it up in time, I'm going to come down to the wire on this one, but I was hoping to get a post up for tomorrow morning uh, that would be in my series of, uh, you know, Through a Lens Darkly, where I look at old photographs. Yeah. That would be, uh, you know, yeah, photographs of uh, uh, kind of yamen runners and clerks and jailers and police officers and and things like that, you know, those kinds of people, public servants who are martial artists from the Qing dynasty. You know, yeah, we should real... mention there's a really strong visual component to your blog, too. Yeah. Like the Da Dao story, I was, uh, there's a couple of shocking images that were like postcards back then, you know, of beheadings with those things and stuff that, yeah. that you just don't see everywhere. Yeah. Well, it, it's important, you know, because a lot of that material was destroyed in China during the Cultural Revolution. It right. doesn't exist anymore. You know, anyone who had pictures of old martial artists or pictures of themselves with martial artists, for heaven's sakes, they burned all that stuff. So one of the things I'm trying to do is, you know, as many pictures as I can from private collections in Japan, in the West, what exists in Taiwan, kind of bring it together in one place so people can begin to see it again. But, um, you know, and it's helpful. You know, this post that I'm going to have tomorrow is, again, going to be looking at a paradox. You know, the paradox is people in 
kind of, you know, the Qing dynasty loved stories about martial artists. They loved novels. They loved opera. Yeah, you know, yeah they, they loved all of that stuff, but they hated real martial artists. Right? <laughs> you know, they, they didn't like martial arts. They had no cultural standing. They had no class. I mean, parents everywhere went, warned their kids to stay away from those, you know, martial artists, you know. There yeah, were well, tiny music songs. Mama, don't let your child grow up to be a martial artist. Yeah? Right. <laughs> well, why is this? You know, how is it that on the one hand they love martial arts, and on the other hand they can't stand martial artists? Well, when you take a look again at the places in their community where they see martial artists, like corrupt local clerks and prison officials and police officers, it begins to make a lot more sense why they wouldn't like martial artists. <laughs> right. But there's still a you glamour know? to it, just like today with gangster movies and all that stuff, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We condone mm-hmm. things in our entertainment that we would never condone in our front yard. <laughs> nice, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, you know, I think that's exactly it. I mean, you know, we forget that, you know, in China, the martial arts were really kind of the prov- prov- provenance of criminals and soldiers and public officials that you did not want to get yourself mixed up with. You know, nothing good came of hanging out with these people. Um, Thugs in and, the park. <laughs> you know, we in the West, you know, we learned about the martial arts from the Japanese, and that's just a very different scene, you yeah. know, because, you know, they venerate the martial arts, and there was a ruling class that did the martial arts, and, man, then you go to China, and suddenly nothing makes sense. Well, I mean, you know, that's the way it is for a lot of people. They just... They can't kind of get their mind wrapped around this Chinese cultural mindset. And so looking at some pictures of, you know, court officials torturing people and stuff like that, well, hopefully that will help to clear some of this up. Yeah, (laughs) give a little grounding in reality, a little rooting. All right, well, it's been fantastic talking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time out to come on Hi-Ya today. Yeah, well, thank you for coming for the call. And I I, I love the program. I've been listening to a lot of your old podcasts, so I, I really appreciate you guys giving me, giving me a ring. Hey, it's been our pleasure. Definitely. Okay, we're back with the news. We need to rehearse that. Yeah, we do. Next time. We'll get it next time. Next time. News, news, news with Craig Augustus Kiesling. Augustus. Wow. See, I've I've worked my way up. Now I'm an Augustus at episode 37. (laughs) Yep. Put that on your calendar. Remember it. Remember it. News, news, news. Got a couple of uh, interesting little stories for you. MMA fighter Quentin Ward. Recently paid a family friend to uh, ink his his uh, his inspiration uh, onto his forearm. His grandma, who he says gave him strength and support, he wanted to have his name tattooed onto his forearm uh, to kind of honor her uh, as he went into his fights and all that good stuff. He paid his buddy forty dollars. However, after the job was done, he looked at it and realized. <laughs> The name Grace was upside down and backwards, uh, regardless of different ways that you turned your arm. <laughs> and then it took him, 
It took him $40 to have that inked, but it took him $400 to have it corrected. And his friend is no longer his friend, and he's uh, kind of, you know, made some complaints and all that <laughs> official things. <laughs> well, this is only tangentially relative to martial arts, but uh, <laughs> that's kind of funny. That is, I think, is martial I feel sorry for the guy. Have. I wouldn't, you know, if I was a tattoo guy, I wouldn't uh, mind having my granny's name on my arm at all. <laughs> She had a four-letter name, so I could put them right across my knuckles. D O R A. Oh, yeah. This is Dora. My grandpa's name, Olin. O L E N. Yeah, that's, that, that is one way to look at it. Or that's you could simply say too, that yeah. Olin happens to like Dora, yeah. the cartoon show. Yeah. You know. So if Olin don't, if Olin don't get you, then Dora will. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh my God! Yesterday during this the seminar, there was a birthday party up above us. You know, in that little park a area. Birthday party? Well, no. I had to pause. I'm teaching these guys. You're I'm swinging a broadsword, and I had to pause because I saw this this girl walking up the. Uh, the sidewalk to the party and i realized oh my god am i suffering heat stroke or does that lady have like elephantitis thing with a face and realized slowly thereafter she was in costume and her big big you know five foot head was dora the explorer oh. <laughs> singing dora graham indeed steven seagal we've all heard of this fellow who yeah <laughs> He's got he's got the uh, three word titled movies back in the eighties and nineties that oh, rocked yeah. the house. I remember him. Born to Kill. Yeah, that's right. And then Born he did he did the uh, Louisiana <laughs> cop show, and you know he's become the butt of many jokes. Unfortunately, here's something of which I'm going to announce that he may become the butt of many more jokes. That's right in Chechnya, Grozny specifically, <laughs> which is the capital. Uh, he's recently been hanging out with the leader uh, of this place, Ramzan Kadyrov. Uh, pronunciation. Hey, it's no a nice clue. try. It was a nice try. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> can't remember a few years Good back. Good job, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> there you Bonus go. points. Bonus points. He uh, in, in this area took a lot of um, destruction and whatnot because they had some wars going on there and all this good stuff, and so the leader of the place has recently been uh, taking a lot of strides in, in uh, cleaning up the the place and rebuilding the city and all this good stuff. Steven Seagal, our friend, was recently there hanging out, uh, doing some seminars and all this good stuff, and recently uh, has become great friends with with the leader and. Uh, uh, the leader took him to watch some some uh, national dances, cultural heritage type things, and Steven Seagal really fell in love with it and the music and all this. And as a way of saying thank you to the leader, he promised later this year to do one of his solo concerts. Oh, concerts. he's a musician. He's a, actually a pretty good player. Yeah. So he's not just playing, he's also singing. My friends. He, he plays the blues. He, he does. Yeah, that's what he does. Indeed. But that's what he's doing in Chechnya towards the end of this year. <laughs> MMA fighter Michael Whalen Lowe uh, has a 14-4 uh, record since his start in 2006 uh, in both the UFC as well as other circuits and all that good stuff. Well, the reason he comes up, he's suing a sex shop. And manufacturers of a product known as Kama Sutra Pleasure Balm Prolonging Gel because supposedly uh -oh. it has left him permanently disfigured and dysfunctional. Where did he use it at? Now, your guess is as good as mine, but I think <laughs> pleasure. 
Probably means the earlobes. He didn't friend. put it on his big toe, I'm guessing. <laughs> Is that what the kids are calling it these days? Yep. <clears throat> this little piggy went to market. And this little piggy went home. Uh, well, okay, yeah. And, and one last interesting, uh, interesting piece of news. And, and as you listeners will notice, um, I'm, I'm steep, kind of keeping away from the, uh, you know, black belt molested, so on and so forth uh, thing. Not that those stories weren't uh, ready. Yeah, but we can take a break from that. That's yes, fine. indeed. That's fine. I figured I'd, I needed uh, to make this apparent because it's actually making its rounds. And the reason I was uh, kind of pushed to actually announce this was because I got a, a notification from CNN that the story was actually in. So I said, well, if it's at CNN, it's good enough for everybody. Uh, if you guys will remember a little bit last year, uh, Lum Joe, uh, kind of grandmaster of the Hongar Hongkun system, passed, passed away, away. Yep. Uh, leaving his, his two main sons who did both traditional Chinese medicine as well as running uh, Kung Fu schools in the Hongar system, uh, you know, to, to do this. Anyway, Lam Chum Fai, one of his students um, and obviously sons, uh, is kind of fighting the apathy of modern Chinese people uh, who are flocking to um, non-Chinese arts or to the more competitive wushu and money-making <laughs> arts by releasing uh, the first English-language book um, going into the details of Hongar and Hongkun from the Lam family. Uh, the book's called Hongkun Fundamentals, uh, kind of colon, Fokkun. Uh, which is Fofo is kind of the second half of Gongji Fofo King. You know? Yeah, I've seen this. Yeah, it's it's making its rounds. It's uh, it's it's not a cheap book, but it goes into the details, and it's it's their way of saying, "Hey, let's bring it back home, folks." Yeah, let's keep it alive one way or another. Yeah, exactly. And friends, that's the news. All right. Well, sorry we got all crass there for a minute and sucked the intellectual air out of the room that we'd worked so hard to <laughs> generate with our guest. <laughs> well, we need that from time to time, a slap of reality back in the face. It was good, man. I loved hearing I did that. a lot of listening. I noticed yeah, that. Absolutely. Do a little That'd bit of talking for us now. But, yeah, well, before we let you guys go, and since we've got Bruce here, and he hadn't said a whole lot yet, um, Yet. we had a little discussion outside about, uh, you know, the variation you see on applications by size. And I know this is something we've touched on before, but, uh, Bruce, uh, you know, like, uh, we'll set it up the same way it happened. We'll try to relive the moment. That's right. <laughs> Bruce is a big guy. Everybody. Bruce was asking me about a particular little thing that we do in Bagua, one of the 24. And he knew, you know, one or two of the things that we did with it, uh, or at least that's all he fessed to at the moment. <laughs> And uh, he asked me, what are some other things? So I showed him some other possibilities with it, gave him some ideas. And then he did one that I didn't show him uh, that effectively used his size. Yes, indeed. And then we looked at another little piece of it. Like if you do the, instead of the cross grab, the same side, I'm like, he's big enough. He can do that same thing either mm -hmm. way. Right. Which is something that Craig cannot say exactly that's I, that <laughs> right. was my only contribution to the conversation out on the Craig's deck like, oh was, shit no i gotta do it this way exactly because <laughs> i'm a tiny guy i i couldn't pull that off i have to manipulate it but size does matter well i actually said that <laughs> size matters in, a, in in more ways than you think though <laughs> right tell us about it Bruce. interpret that mm -hmm. uh -huh. i'll just leave it at that no um i mean for example if if you're 
with a, if you're fighting against a much smaller person, there's a whole lot of challenges on how you grab them. Say you're trying to subdue them and and grapple with them. You know, they their arms are much shorter. Their their reach is much different. You know, they they have a lot easier of a time maneuvering around you. So they somewhat have an advantage. A smaller person might have an advantage in some grappling situations. You know, right. Proper mic technique. Yeah, I'm trying to get you back in there. <laughs> Anyways, a, you know, a smaller person might have somewhat of an advantage in some grappling situations. Obviously, you, the person, a skilled person with size and weight advantage, is going to have a huge advantage and possibly win. <laughs> right. You know, it, it, it does help. It's not like it's a hindrance being a big guy. No. It's just I have to look at martial arts in the. In, with the viewpoint of how does a big guy defend himself from a little guy because right. I'm I'm bigger than most or at least I'm hey, I'm bigger than most guys. Well, and a, a, savvy little, biggest, a savvy but. little guy will do stuff to you that you might not be expecting if you're not looking for it because it's not the way you operate. Right. You got yeah. somebody like Mickey. Mickey you know does the exact same Bagua stuff that I do <clears throat> and I send him over to somebody to do the same application I just worked on him with. And he shows them something different <laughs> because he's different, you yeah. know? And uh-huh. then the, they come back over and go, who's right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Depends well, on the context. Right. If, if you're his size, then, yeah, you're going to attack the limb first and then work your way into position. Whereas, yeah. you know, you if you're big enough, you can just throw your shoulder in there, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. something that, that, too, combining what uh, our interview today, the guy who's taking it very from a scholarly point of view, getting the brain in there. There's definitely that aspect of playing a lot and physical sensation, but there's also being alive and, and mindful when you are working an application, even at the beginning of learning phases, recognizing how you know high are their shoulders higher than yours um, height wise mm-hmm. you know uh, do they open their elbows out a lot? do they need you know their uh, bigger movements because of their girth? This is going to change a lot of things, you know. Well, w- one of the things, like with grappling, for example, if somebody's arms are shorter than mine, it, it somewhat puts me at a disadvantage. If somebody's arms are longer than mine, I'm, I have a higher percentage of times, like say in a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu rolling format. Right. I can oftentimes, a long-limbed person, I can lock them Dominate. up and tap them out a little bit easier. A smaller person of course that's skilled you know is is gonna tap me out most of the time if not all the time well it comes down to basic science even i mean they have more uh space to go with a long limb you have more strength to use to move that limb Mm -hmm. they have more a longer path to get to their destination which is well yeah and the natural compensation for that is reach yeah but once you're in the grapple, then reach is not so significant. And someone with shorter yeah. limbs is going to be in an advantage when you're body to body because yeah, they have more options. A longer limb is easier to go in on. Right. It's a, a lever. Yeah. Right, <laughs> I mean, exactly. the, the arm or the leg or whatever. Yeah. The bigger the lever, the more obvious it is. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I look at martial arts, and I've probably said this before, you know, because it's a reoccurring theme for me, but I look at them a little bit differently than most people in, in that. I, I take it how it's going to work for me. You know, I mean, I'm a bigger guy. Who am I going to potentially, who have I been attacked by? Who's been a threat to me? Who is a potential, you know, and as far as using experience. it for self-defense? Right. You know? right. And, you know, it's, it's generally 
little guys. I mean, right. it's, you know, the guys uh, bigger than you tend to be teddy bears, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You're kind of they're, a teddy They're bear. not scared. Come here, give me a hug, <laughs> That's would you? Right. Because, I mean, Big there is a certain, there is honestly a certain sense of security being a larger guy, you know what I mean? When I walk into a gas station at 4 a.m., they're a lot less, you know, some thug is a lot less likely to look at to me choose you as a target than me yeah, yeah yeah for sure you know then I mean, again if the little guy like then again if the little guy has it in for you he's gonna say what anyone logically yeah, would well how s- are you gonna deal with that big guy stick a knife in him he's get him smash from behind a soup can on my yeah, head yeah exactly so you gotta be watching out for a higher level when it does happen Quickie i saw sneaky, that in, in detroit actually um i i at this uh, venue called Harpo's in Detroit. I have heard of Harpo's. Google, Google Harpo's yeah. in Detroit. and just This wow. is not the company that the uh, <laughs> it's, talk, it's talk on show Harper lady Street. left. Right. And I, I, they have armed security that walk you in and out of the venue from the bus door to the bus venue, wow. which is about 10 feet. Okay? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just not safe. There's just a, a convenience store across the street. I was like, well, I mean, I'm going to go get a lighter or a candy bar or soda or whatever it was that I was looking for. And and um, I walked across there, and there's you know people that looks lot, not like any other hood. Right. And all of a sudden, there's this conflict, and this guy smashes a like a can of soup on a guy's head and just like pummels him with a can of soup out of the blue. How do you, no can defend. <laughs> Campbell's soup is good food. Uh-huh. Well, maybe <laughs> he was not. a little guy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Maybe yeah. he was wall-eyed or something to give you a warning. <laughs> Whoa, dude. I'm not getting anywhere near him in that soup aisle. There was bulletproof glass and everything. It was weird. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, way down in the hood. Yeah. That's where I used to go when I was young and stupid. Not pretty much anymore. No. <laughs> You're not welcome there, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> no, I went in and out of those shitty punk rock clubs myself many, 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 many times. Uh, you know, and there was no armed security to march us in and out with our thousand dollar guitars. Yeah. Oh fuck! I, I just came to the wrong place <laughs> with my Datsun, you know, or my Chevy Dotson, Chevette hatchback shit. full of amplifiers and expensive equipment. Yeah. Who even says hatchback <laughs> or Datsun anymore? Do those items even exist anymore? Yes, uh, in they one do. form or another. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> There's a strong Crazy. research. In- <laughs> research. Yes, Datsuns are coming back, man. <laughs> oh, the B210 is the hatchbacks. car of the future. Nice. It was the car of the future. In and we can have them be brown colored, most of them. That'd be nice. Mm-hmm. Most colors aren't brown anymore. That's a pity. Silver roof. Most colors aren't brown anymore. All right, I think we've kind of <laughs> lost our ability to the talk cars. sense at this point. The cars, the colors of the cars. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> I did oh. say the colors aren't brown. Well, and that's the way it was. And that's the way it was, hey. folks. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of little stuff we tossed out here, plus a great interview on this show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Yes, we indeed. certainly enjoyed doing it. It was a fantastic listen. I, I learned a lot, and, and it um, it's going to cause me to look at his website. Which What, what yeah, was it you, again? Yeah, definitely Kung you Fu guys. Tea, and actually, yeah, it's Chinese Martial, it's martial it's Arts. blog, though, not a website, right? Yeah, yeah it's a blog. Uh, Chinese Martial Theory, Chinese Martial Science, no, something. No, no, no. It's, uh, it's, uh, we'll, we'll have to get the actual URL. It's one of those things that com. doesn't match. Yes. Yeah, and, the, and uh, you yeah, could enter a W or not, it sounds like. And, uh, it, you know, if you guys are listening, definitely go check it out. Subscribe to his blog. Put it yeah. on your RSS feed or whatever you do. Lots of great articles and lots of interesting photographs and other visual stuff in there, too. Uh, yeah. And he covers a range of stuff from, from fairly academic to uh, pop culture, too. So Yes, indeed. Check that out. And, uh, Bruce, it's 
It's been great having you back on the show. Always a pleasure. That traveling yes. man that you are. Yeah, we'll have to get you back on. You got to keep us aware, man. Next break, you get on your world travels. Get back on the high <laughs> That will be in September. See, okay. there you have it. We'll see you when the leaves start falling. Indeed. And uh, Craig, I'm sick of looking at you, but you are a rosy <laughs> shade of pink today. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have to. To say something racial, I have determined that white people are not white; they're pink. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Right? Apply so a little this whole white and, and black thing. Thanks, I am beige, and you are pink. Yeah. Yes, indeed. You're yeah, beige I was and out we're in the, I was out in the sun yesterday for eight hours uh, teaching a, a, a seminar, and uh, I'm sunburned from head to toe, and not happy about it. <laughs> And now that we know Bruce is racist against sunburned white people. <laughs> hey, Ginge. <laughs> We're going to leave you all on the count of three with a hearty see ya.